there are usually two responses uh, to when you lose your normal spiritual rhythms. Uh, those responses are either going to be going to be either out of sight and out of mind. That when you don't have someone who's keeping you accountable, when you don't have things like chapel and Bible class and encounter, uh, then you're just going to completely forget about God because no one is forcing you to think about Him. That's the first response: is out of sight, out of mind. Well, the second response is absence makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, that because you spent time away from Him, uh, you've missed Him more. Uh, for the alum coming back, hopefully, uh, that's what you're experiencing to see your friends and your family. Since it's been a while, absence has made your heart grow fonder. And I hope that for all of us as we're coming back to encounters tonight, that we're not coming back and be like, oh yeah, I forgot that God exists. Um, we're coming back hungrier for more of Him. Uh, well, except for maybe the freshmen here, I think most of you guys were there uh, the very first time I ever pitched encounter at chapel last year. It was just my third month here at YIS, uh, but I went up on stage to announce a new after-school youth ministry, and I said that we'd meet on Thursdays in NPR 2 at 5.30. I promised that there would be food, that there would be fun, and that there would be fellowship. Uh, but honestly speaking, um, standing up there in front of like 200 of y'all, uh, I had no idea whether or not anyone would show up. Right? Like I was just going up there, hoping that these things would happen. I didn't know if anyone was going to come. And then, uh, like a few months down the line, one of the more veteran guest teachers who had been here for a while, they told me that while they were sitting there in that chapel service, they thought to themselves, who is this new guy? This is not going to work. Kids aren't going to show up. He's going to get his feelings hurt. And this is going to fail. Well, a year and a half later of meeting every single week, two lock-ins, and 40 decisions to accept Christ later, I think we can confidently say that God never fails. Amen? Uh, but as I was making the announcement, I said that the reason we were starting Encounter was because in just those first few months of teaching Bible here, I had come to realize that while most of you guys had a great deal of Bible information, like I was impressed during the Jeopardy section of uh, the Bible, or the Bible section of Jeopardy, that while most of you guys had a great deal of Bible knowledge, uh, you lacked an actual relationship with God. And my pitch was this. I don't know if you guys remember this. I said, I know that you know. I know that you know the word of God. But do you know the God of the word? I know you know the word of God. But do you know the God of the word? How many of you guys remember that question? Um, you know, we leave for our first ever retreat as encounter tomorrow. And the theme of our retreat is Behold. And throughout the retreat, what we'll be doing is we'll be examining the different characteristics of God and making an attempt to behold all that he is. So tonight will function as the first sermon in that series. And our core text for tonight comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. The title of our message this evening is Knowing God. And this is how the passage reads. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Let me pray for us one more time before we go any further. Father God, thank you so much as we look back on the past year and a half of what you have been doing in our midst and in this place. Uh, we are so thankful uh, that you are not only the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, but you are the Lord our God. Uh, that you are not the God of yesterday, but that you are the God of today, and that you have proven to be living and active. And Father, we confess that this weekend, uh, we just need a greater vision of you. We need a revelation of you. And we ask you to help us to behold your glory as we look into your word this evening and this weekend. So be here with us, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. All right, our big idea for tonight is that unless we know God for who he is, we will never become who we were made to be. Unless we know God for who he is, we will never become who we were made to be. And just full disclosure, the series that we'll be going through to, uh, this weekend, like this is not all from my own head and from my own personal meditation. I'm leaning uh, very heavily on various men of God whose teaching has made an impact on my life. People like uh, A.W. Tozer, J.I. Packer, Chip Ingram. I'm just uh, taking what they've taught and I'm contextualizing it here for us. So if after their sheet you want to do a deep dive into this topic, I would highly recommend any of these texts. Uh, the Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, the sermon series, uh, The Real God by Chip Ingram. Uh, like, I'm just the middleman, guys. I'm just like, they make the product, I just bring it to the streets. Um, can we get can we get a journal for the, some of the kids who came in late? Um, all right, so first thing we want to talk about tonight is the importance of knowing God. The importance of knowing God. So this is coming from our core verse, our theme verse of the retreat, Isaiah 40, verse 9. And this verse comes, again, from the book of Isaiah. As Israel is in Babylonian captivity, the Israelites are discouraged, they are distraught, and they feel hopeless. And God sends his messenger to comfort his people. And what is the message that he gives to them? Is it a detailed plan, right? Like if you're worried, if you're distraught, is, is he going to give them a detailed plan about what he's going to do to bring them out of exile? Does he give them a promise of future riches and luxury that is coming toward them? No, the message that he gives is simply this. He says, behold your God. The most important thing for the Israelites at this juncture of history is for them to have an accurate understanding of who God is. More than a detailed plan, more than a promise, they simply need to believe that God is God. That he is as powerful, as majestic, as holy, and as loving as he says he is. Uh, before I taught Bible at Yus, before I taught English in America, uh, I, or while I was teaching English in America, uh, I taught freshman English, and the curriculum at my school was centered on the study of identity. And no, I don't mean like, not like child of God, bride of Christ, not like the identity that we've been going through uh, here at Encounter. Uh, they talked about identity from a very secular standpoint. They thought about identity as kind of like this. It's the intersection of your family, your race, your gender, your social class, all these things. And these were the main categories by which the world has chosen to identify itself. Right, so in recent years, after the killing of George Floyd, after the rise of Asian hate crimes, race has been one of the central talking points in American culture. There's a famous line from Angie Thomas's novel, The Hate You Give, uh, where one of the characters says, if you don't see my blackness, then you don't see me. Some people think that the most important thing about you is what race you are. Because what race you are will determine your experience of life, how people perceive you, how they treat you. Um, and so they say that your race is the most important thing about you. For other people, it's not about your race. They will say that the most important thing about you is your social class. It's about money. They say it's not about black versus white. It's about the haves and the have-nots. And people in this camp will argue that everything else is just a distraction, whether it's race or gender, whatever, they say that it's really just about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Uh, the rich 1% are trying to distract the poor from what the main issue is. And so they argue that the social class that you were born into is the most important thing about you. So race, social class, 
at YIS, what do you guys think people would say is the most important thing about you? Any guesses? What is the most important thing for YIS students? It is probably your education. Right? It's about what college acronym you get to put in your Instagram profile once you get accepted. Right? So you'll have something like this. You'll have like Jenny Kim, she, her, yes, USC. Right? Or if you're trying to be more slick about it, try to be more subtle, then maybe something like this. Daniel Park, Seoul, New Haven, Connecticut. Um, and implicit behind those few letters that you get to have next to your name is a whole story about the kind of person that you are. Right? Like you see. New Haven, that's not just a city in America, right? Like when you see New Haven, Connecticut in someone's Instagram profile, you automatically begin assuming things about them, right? You assume that they're intelligent. You assume that they're a hard work man. If Tavon was here right now, he would be so happy. Um, but you assume all, yeah, sorry, it's Yale. Yale is at New Haven for people, sorry. Um, these are the things that you begin to assume about them. And these letters imply things about you. So whether it's your race, whether it's your social class, or whether it's your education, these are the things that society says is the most important. I'm not here to say that those things are not important. Of course they are. Like my personal identity has been profoundly shaped by those things. However, none of these things is the most important thing about us. So then what is? Here's what A.W. Tozer says in the first chapter of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And for this reason, the greatest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. You should write that first line down, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Tozer argues that far more important and where you come from, far more important than what you can do, is what you in your heart actually believe about God. He even goes on to argue that if you were able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, then you can predict with certainty his spiritual future. And this is true whether you believe in God or whether you don't. Either way, your view of God, or lack thereof, will profoundly impact the decisions that you make on a day-to-day -day basis. Whether you believe in one God or many gods, whether you believe in no God, whether you believe in a kind God, a just God, a loving God, all of these things are going to determine the decisions that you make. So let's do a case study, right? Let's pretend that there are four AP Chem students. It is the end of the semester. Summatives are stacking up, and all four of these students passed out while they were studying for a summative exam the next day. Well, luckily for these four students, they are S-day students. Okay, and there is a Y-day student who has taken the exam the day before and has sent them all the answers in their group chat uh, before they take their test. And so now each of these students have a choice to make. They can either decide, I can take the exam honestly and just deal with whatever grade I get on my own, even though I passed out and need to study, or do I use the answer my friend sent me? And just to spicy, uh, spice up the plot a little bit, these students all have a 95% in their class right now. They need a 97 to end the semester with an A. All right? So student one believes that there's probably a God, but if there is, he probably isn't too concerned with what a high school does on a test. Student two doesn't believe in God, 
which I'm not saying that doesn't mean that they don't have morals, but he believes that cheating on a test is far from the worst thing that you can do. It's pretty much a victimless crime. Student three believes that God exists and believes that cheating is a sin and believes that God will punish them if they sin. And student four believes that God exists, believes that cheating is a sin, and believes that God will forgive them if they repent. Based on their view of God, what choices do you guys think each of these students will make? Some of them believe strongly in God. Some of them don't believe in God at all. Some of them are kind of unsure. But do you guys see how whether you're religious or not, what you believe about God will start to shape the decisions you make in your day-to-day life? Do you guys see how that plays out? A study published in the 2010 uh, Journal of Religion and Health showed that people who believe in an angry God are more likely to suffer from things such as social anxiety, paranoia, obsessional thinking, and compulsions. Dr. Neva Silton, professor of psychology at Marymount Manhattan College, says this. Quite simply, the notion is that belief in a benevolent God will reduce the sense that the world is threatening at the neural level because God will protect you from harm. However, the angry God not only fails to provide protection, he may actually pose a threat of harm. So this study has shown how what you believe about God specifically will even affect your mental health and the types of issues that you will deal with. Consciously or unconsciously, your view of God determines each and every one of the decisions you make on a day-to-day basis, which determines then the habits you create, which will ultimately determine the kind of person you become. Famous poet Ralph Waldo Emerson says this, so a thought, you reap an action. So an act, you reap a habit. So a habit, you reap a character. And so a character, and you reap a destiny. And so if he is correct, and if our thoughts shape our destiny, then how much more does your view of God dictate the outcome of your life? The first and most important thought that shapes our destiny are thoughts of God. Whenever I'm counseling somebody, right, like whenever someone asks me for advice, uh, they're going through a situation, uh, really one of the core things that I'm trying to understand about them is how their different life experiences have shaped their view of God. How has the intersection of their experiences with their family, with their friends, their good memories, and their traumatic ones, how has that shaped the way they view God? Because I know that I can get a handle on what their view of God is like then I can predict with fairly high certainty what their specific struggles will be, what causes them anxiety, depression, and what gospel they need to hear. This is why it is so important for us to know God accurately, because our knowledge of God will shape our destiny. So how do you know whether or not you actually know God or just know about God? The second thing we're talking about tonight is evidence of knowing God. For this, we're going to look at Psalm 103, verse 7. And it says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. This is a psalm written by King David, the man after God's own heart. And what he says here is that there is a difference between knowing the acts of God and knowing the ways of God. Or put a different way, there is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. He says that Israelites, they knew about God's acts, but Moses, he actually understood God's ways. The Israelites had heard that God made the heavens and earth. They heard that he split the Red Sea. They tasted the manna from heaven. But they could not connect those individual acts to build an understanding of what God is actually like. But Moses, he understood 
God's ways. He was called a friend of God. He spoke to God face to face, and only Moses knew God's tendencies, his habits, and his way of being. So to help illustrate this, I brought back some snacks from America. Right, so I know we did some Bible trivia during Jeopardy. We're going to do a few more. So I'm going to test how well do you guys know uh, Bible Acts. All right, so question number one at stake for this is a peanut butter and jelly dipping snack trait from Trader Joe's. Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? David Jen. Moses, and the answer is correct. All right. Second, uh, I also went to Cancun, Mexico while I was on vacation. And wait, can you, can you not show the question after I show this necklace thing just because I have to see whose hand goes first? All right. I have fiery chili gummy bears from Mexico. All right. Next question. Who served as Moses' replacement after he died? Luna Lee. Correct. All right, we have the most American snack that I could think of. We have a Hostess Twinkie. All right, question number three. Name three people with whom God made a covenant. Andrew Lee. Abraham, David, and Moses. And the answer is, there they are, Abraham, Moses, and David. All right, four, a viral, it got a little broken. Mr. Beast candy bar. Rare collectible item. All right, question four. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Claire. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments and? What else? Lydia. Oh. No, not Torah. Yeah, Jingu? The staff? Does anyone know the last one? Oh, who said that? Kido? Oh, Kido. Come grab this. Good job, Kido. Wow, yes. The answer is the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, the jar of manna, and the staff of Aaron. Did Mr. Nelson give you the assist? Kido. All right. Last but not least, four. And this question is a hard one because this is, a, this is the most expensive one. This is a pack of Albanese gummy bears. If you haven't had these yet, these are the best gummy bears that they make. All right. Question five. When did Moses touch the promised land? When did Moses touch the promised land? Andrew. He did not. Incorrect. David. When he was 100 years old? No. Incorrect. Alyssa. Not, no, not in heaven. Alexandria. After 40 years. After 40 years? No. Here. No, now you're just guessing numbers. <laughs> no. Okay, Angelie, last shot. Technically, he went to the promised land, but then he was like punished because they realized, oh, this will be God's land. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, when, did, when did he actually enter it? The answer is. Jingu? When he was buried. Not when he was buried. The answer is at the transfiguration of Jesus with Elijah on the mountain, Moses was allowed to enter the nation, and the land of Israel, the promised land. All right, so this will be saved for a potential prize in the future. Okay, but not bad. That was actually very impressive. I'm very impressed with you guys. So it seems like when it comes to knowledge about the Word of God, we're pretty good, right? Like, we understand God's acts. 
Now I want to see how well you guys understand God's ways. So I'm going to give you guys two scenarios. Right? So I want you to imagine this is your friend who is complaining to you about their life. I want you to imagine, what would you say to them if they said this to you? First friend says, it feels like no matter what I do, I can't have the kind of friend group that I want. The friends I've not known the longest are getting so boring, and I feel like I've outgrown them. But the friends I have the most fun with maybe aren't the best influences on me. My parents don't really like them either, but I swear they're not bad people. They keep moving away one by one, and I don't understand why this keeps happening. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two. I didn't get into my dream school. I don't understand. I worked so hard all throughout high school. I had good grades, had good ECs, good rec letters. I never got into any trouble. I never did anything wrong. I even prayed before every meal, before I go to bed every night. I thought God was supposed to be good. Why didn't he help me get to the school I wanted? How is this for my good? How many of you guys still feel as confident answering these people? Maybe not as much, right? Uh, so this is what I mean when I say that there's a difference between understanding uh, the acts of God and understanding his ways. So while I was in college, um, before I became a teacher, I worked as a, you guys know this, I worked as a paralegal at a law firm for like four years. Yeah. So I worked at a paralegal for a law firm. Um, we worked closely with SK Hynix, and uh, December was always the busiest time of the year for us, right? So December... Uh, but I, I, like, I counted, I measured, I kid you not, because every company wants to get their patents filed before the end of the year, so they would just send work to us, like it would come fleeing in. And so during the month of December, I would work 16-hour days, day after day. So think about how many hours of sleep are split at night? Eight, right? What's 24 minus eight? 16. So that means every hour I wasn't sleeping, I was working. Okay, this was the math. I was a little disappointed with guys. Okay, the, the Bible you guys did well. The math, I was. A little, I'm a little bit concerned. We're supposed to be good at this. Um, and so I worked 16 hour days, day after day, and it got to the point where driving home and uh, driving to work and driving home felt like a waste of time. So I just brought my sleeping bag to the office and I would just sleep at work because that's how much work there was to get done. All right. And so during this time, because the CEO, the senior partner of the firm, he knew how busy we were, uh, he would buy us every single meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, so after a few years of working there, I knew the drill. I knew how busy it was going to get. Uh, and so during the month of December, I knew I don't need to pack a lunch. I don't need to pack a breakfast. My boss is going to buy it all for me. But one year, uh, I get my friend a job at the firm. Work is starting piling in. And so I know we have a long day ahead of us. Uh, but my friend, I told him, hey, our boss is going to buy his lunch today. Don't worry about it. Don't eat your lunch. Um, it's 1130. He's like, uh, OK, I'll wait. He's hungry, right? Noon, 12 o'clock hits. My friend's like, yeah, are you sure he's gonna buy his lunch? Yeah, I'm like, trust me, he's gonna buy his lunch. Just wait for it. Twelve thirty rolls around. My friend says he's too hungry. He can't take it anymore. He opens up his can of soup. He heats it up in the microwave and he's eating his soup. And I like ten minutes later, my boss comes in. He throws me his credit card. He says, "Hey, buy everyone lunch. Buy them whatever they want." Right. And so my friend, uh, because he had heard about our boss's acts, but he had not personally worked with him for years. He didn't know our boss's ways. And so he was not able to enjoy uh, the meal that we had first time. He satisfied himself with a cold bowl of soup. And I tell you this story to illustrate, this is the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. This is the difference between knowing his acts and knowing his ways. People who only know about God, they will eventually cave. When the pressure rises, when things get tough, they'll start to get anxious about whether or not God will pull through just like my coworker did. And they'll compromise. At the end of the day, 
they will have filled themselves with things not from God, and they will not be able to fully enjoy the things that God had promised to them. For the people, on the other hand, who have walked with God, the people who have learned his ways, they've been trained in the faith, and they know that if they wait, that the feast that awaits them is far greater. My prayer is that for all of us, we will become people who have not simply heard of God's acts, but people who know his ways, people who know him personally and intimately. So how do you know when you know God? Here are three signs. Uh, these are three characteristics of people who know God from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. The first is that people who know God have great energy for God. 1 Corinthians 15.10, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, on the contrary, I work harder than any of the other apostles. People who know God have great energy for him. They are motivated by a desire to live for him, to live for his glory, and see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. They don't complain about burnout. They don't complain about how much they have on their plate. They are excited by the opportunity to serve God. And they don't find obedience to be burdensome. They love obeying God. I want you to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 in your journal right now. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much energy do you have for God? People who know God have great energy for God. Second, people who know God have great boldness for God. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The second indicator that you actually know God is that you have great boldness for him. People who know God are not ashamed of it. They're not embarrassed to admit that they're Christian because they think it makes them sound too ignorant or too conservative. When they get to college and people ask, they don't pretend like they're not religious. When they pray before a meal, they don't just sit there praying with their eyes open so nobody knows that you're praying. They fear God far more than they fear man, and they know that because they have God's approval, man's rejection means nothing. They are not only bold in their relationships, they are bold in their personal decisions. They are not always calculating, trying to figure out what's the best possible decision to make in the future. They're not trying to min-max all the stats of their life. They're not scared of taking risks. They're not clinging to comfort or possessions because they can afford to make bold decisions because they know the God of the universe is holding them in the palm of their hand. So again, rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10. How great is your boldness for God? And third, J.I. Packer says, people who know God have great contentment in God. Philippians 4.12 says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The third indicator is that people who know God, they are content with God. Because in this world, happiness depends entirely on our circumstances. Depends on whether or not you're getting what you want in that moment. People who know God, they have a joy that cannot be taken from them because their contentment is anchored in Christ. So again, 1 through 10, how content are you with God? Or does God need to give you A, B, and C in order for you to be happy? So if this is the evidence of actually knowing God, how do we then actually get to know God better? How do we get to know him more accurately? The third thing we're talking about is the process of knowing God. The first avenue that we get to know God through is his word. 
John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God has given us his word so that we can know him. It is the primary avenue he has given us. It is his revelation to mankind. And so after the retreat, what we will be doing is we're going to be interacting with God's word through various means, through sermons where we hear God's word. During the morning quiet times, we will study his word for ourselves. As we sing songs that are based on scripture, and if you know scripture, you know the songs we sing today were dripping with verses. And all of this is because it is his primary avenue. He's given us to know it. And this is why a retreat is such a critical opportunity where we actually give God the space to speak into our lives. Because you check out during chapel, you just go through the motions for Bible class, whatever it takes to get a grade. Maybe your heart's a little bit more open at encounter because you chose to be here. But if this 25-minute sermon every Thursday is the only exposure that you get to God's word throughout the week, then your knowledge of him will be shallow and your spiritual life will be superficial. But at the retreat, as we take extended time to marinate in God's word, what we're doing is we are making room for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. John says it's not just truth, but we worship him in spirit and in truth, because God is spirit. He is a spiritual being. And therefore, it takes the Holy Spirit of God illuminating the Word of God in our hearts in order for us to actually have intimate knowledge of God. Let me make this absolutely clear. Information does not produce transformation. Information does not produce transformation. There is a certain type of Christian who will dedicate a great deal of their time studying the Bible, studying theology, reading commentaries. They will occupy themselves with various theological controversies, but they will not resemble Christ. And don't get me wrong, study is good, study is foundational, but study is not a substitute for intimacy. The Word of God only brings about transformation into our lives when it is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. You could have a PhD in the Bible, and unless the Spirit of God is working in your hearts, you will not resemble Christ. And so that is why when we marketed this retreat, we made it very clear this is a spiritual retreat. It is not a recreational retreat, right? Like, we're not going to be making lanyards and making friendship bracelets. That is not what this retreat is for. We are seeking after an encounter with the Spirit of the living God. And we are depending wholeheartedly on the Holy Spirit to show up and to do a work in our hearts and in our lives. And the third avenue that God has given us to know Him is community. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so this is what Paul says happens, that as you behold God, what happens is that you then actually start to become like God. Slowly but surely, from one degree of glory to another, you are being transformed into his image. And that is our hope this weekend, that as we behold God for who he is, that we will become like him. But he does not say that this happens in isolation. What does he say? He says, we all. Knowing God is a corporate activity. It is a communal endeavor. God is too great and too large for one person to know everything that there is to know about him. But through one another and in community, we have a fuller picture 
of the beauty and the splendor of the majesty of God. That's why Jesus says, when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. And I quote this verse all the time because it is a promise that I cling to. And I am convinced that as we go forth this weekend into this retreat, that God's presence goes before us and that he will be with us. So we know God through his word, by his spirit, in the context of community. And as these three things happen, our thoughts about God will turn into action, will turn into habits, and we will embrace our God-given calling. Because unless we know God for who he is, we will never become who we were made to be. And so that is what we're striving for. And that's what we're pushing after this weekend, is to know him accurately, not comprehensively. We can't know him in all of his fullness. But as we know him accurately, we will begin to become what he has made us to be. Uh, and years ago, I was reading a blog post uh, written by this pastor. Uh, and this pastor, uh, he, uh, his first child, he had a newborn daughter. Uh, and she was born blind. Um, and in this blog post, he was uh, just sharing vulnerably about the challenges that he's faced uh, having a young infant daughter who was born blind. Um, and he was sharing how he grieves, um, you know, like different things, right? As a father, you know, you have a child, so there's so many things that you're worried about for their future, about her education, about what kind of job she'll be able to get, these different things. But one of the things that he shared uh, that stuck with me is he said that I grieve that my daughter doesn't know what I look like. Uh, he said, you know, she hears my voice, she can feel me holding her, but she doesn't know my face. And I believe that in so many ways, we are like that daughter. He is, whole God is holding us up, he is taking care of us, but because of our spiritual blindness, we do not see his face. But this is what that pastor shared in his blog post. He said that every father longs for his children to see his face. And so the good news for us is that as we embark on this journey of striving to know God, is that greater, far greater than your desire to know God is his, his desire to be known by you. Your Father longs for you to see his face. So that's what we're going to do this weekend. Through his word, by his spirit, and as a community, we will behold our God. I'm going to invite you to take some time to pray before we respond in a song. And as we were doing that self-evaluation and you were uh, waiting, you know, do I have great energy for God? Do I have great contentment in God? If you are beginning to realize that, yes, I know about God, but I do not actually know Him, uh, and I want us to uh, advise us to pray that uh, open the eyes of my heart this weekend. Not just my physical eyes, not just intellectually, uh, but open the eyes of my heart so that I can behold you, so that I can know you.
pray also just for uh, the people next to you. Uh, whether they're going on the retreat or not, can we pray, uh, God, not just me, uh, but we, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of the glory to the next. Can we pray, God, uh, help all of us as a community to behold you, to encounter you, and to meet with you. Let's pray for one another. Uh, not, not just I want to get blessed in this retreat, but help all of us to be nourished and fed by you. Let's intercede, let's cover one another in prayer.